chapter 18, verse 18. Everybody hears me okay? We need a little more juice on here. All right. Uh, Deuteronomy 18. We're going to finish our book of Deuteronomy tonight. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 is where we're at. Um, we started Deuteronomy last week, and we're just, gonna, we're just teaching through the Bible, trying to go book by book. Some books are going to take us longer than others, but Deuteronomy, as we said, was the, or is the second giving of the law, and it's really about so much about God's faithfulness and Israel's obedience, because obviously it's, it's directed towards the second generation, and the first generation's disobedience and lack of faith has kept them out of the promised land. And now he's pointing to God's faithfulness to challenge them to be obedient so they could go into the promised land. And it's really about the true motive for obedience and the necessity of obedience. And this little phrase I was looking up, observe to do, is a, a very key phrase in the book. It appears 14 times in the book. Observe to do. It only appears like 18 times in the whole Bible and appears 14 times just in the book of Deuteronomy. Observe to do. And God is challenging His people, will you observe my commandments to do them? Not to just look at them, but to do them. And we said the breakdown was a look back, a look around, and a look ahead. Those were the way the book is broken down on that Top of that bookshelf right there are some of the outlines. If anybody needs an outline, they're up there, so you could grab them. And uh, we're going to keep going through the book and just touching on uh, some of the key truths and pictures. So Deuteronomy 18 gives us our next picture, our next truth, all right? This one might get me some community strikes, I don't know. But um, 18 is the test of a true prophet, and ah, does God set the bar very high. Let's look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. All right? Let's get it. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I should have flipped there myself. The Lord says through Moses, I will raise them up a prophet, capital P, from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command them. So Jesus Christ in the book of Deuteronomy, as we said last week, is pictured as the one true prophet of God. Amen? So let's hold your place in Deuteronomy 18 and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Why is that so important? Hebrews chapter 1. God wanted that second generation to know that Jesus Christ is their one true prophet. Let's see how that's going to come into the future. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Hebrews 1, 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers, meaning the fathers of Israel, by the prophets, plural, hath in these last days, tribulation context, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, capital S, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So that second generation in the book of Deuteronomy is told that Jesus Christ is going to be their one true prophet, and in the tribulation, it's going to be important for those Hebrews to remember that Jesus Christ is that one true prophet. Why? Because Jesus warned that in the tribulation, many false prophets would arise. So those Hebrews need to know that Jesus Christ is that last one true prophet that's going to give them their words, right? Deuteronomy, think about the parallels. 
Deuteronomy is the generation that missed the promised land under whom? Moses, right? And guess what? They get another chance, and he points them to that one true prophet. What's the book of Hebrews about? The book of Hebrews is about a nation that missed the promised land under Jesus Christ and gets another chance. And you know where the book of Hebrews starts? Hey, remember Jesus is the one true prophet? Just like I told you back in Deuteronomy, Jesus Christ is the one you need to listen to. Now go back to Deuteronomy 18. I'm sure that's all a coincidence. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. Let's look at 19. How are we supposed to feel about this prophet? Deuteronomy 18, 19. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Right? So God is saying, my prophet, the one I send you, is to be believed and obeyed. Can I get an amen on that one? Right? So keep going. Look at verse 20. How about false prophets? But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. So God says, my prophet, listen to him, obey him. False prophets, kill them and eliminate them. That sweet God of yours. Yes, that's how God draws the line. He says, I don't want any of those false prophets to enter the camp because they'll corrupt the camp. So, of course, the question might be, how do we tell the difference? (laughs) That's what they ask in verse 21. See verse 21? And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? The people of Israel are saying, okay, you set the bar pretty high, God. How do we tell the difference between the ones that are from you and the ones that are not from you? God makes it so simple to spot a fraud. Verse 22 is God's measure of a true prophet. Right? 22. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. What's God's measure of a prophet? 100% accuracy. That's how God set the bar so high that you could spot a fraud a mile away. If they're wrong once, they're a false prophet, don't worry about them. they got to be right 100% of the time. None of their words have to fall to the ground if they're truly a prophet of God. You know what that does for us? That safeguards all of us, guys. Because there'll be a lot of false prophets out there. You want me to share some of them with you? I'll give you a few here. Here come the strikes. All right? Alexander Campbell. He founded the Church of Christ. They're like what we call water dogs. They like to baptize people and do all that fun stuff. I always got mixed up in that cult before I got saved. He falsely predicted the second coming In 1866, sorry, Alexander Campbell, you are a false prophet, according to God's measure. I'll give you another one. You know anybody who's a Seventh-day Adventist? Yeah, you do. Ben Carson, he tried running for president a few years ago. He's a nice guy. Got gifted hands, they say, right? Wrote a book about it. William Miller was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. William Miller. He predicted the second coming of Christ on October 22nd, 1844. Really precise, 
but really wrong, Mr. Miller. You are a false prophet. I'm not worrying about you either, right? How about, uh, how about the knock-knock jokes? Uh, Charles Russell, he's the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? The knock-knock jokes. And uh, that's definitely a strike, right? But uh, Charles Russell, Charles Taze Russell, for those of them that really know him, Charles Taze Russell, he predicted the coming of Christ in 1914. I don't know about that. <laughs> Have you watched the news? I don't think he's come yet. I don't see a righteous government yet, right? Uh, and then his successor, Judge Rutherford, he took over the Jehovah's Witnesses after Charles Russell uh, got off the scene. He predicted Jesus Christ would come in 1925. Wrong again, Judge. So you guys are all false prophets. Tell that to them the next time they bother you while you're eating. Uh, how about Joseph Smith? Some of our favorite false prophets in the room, right? Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon Church, treasure hunter and freak show extraordinaire, uh, but he founded a whole religion that people followed. He actually translated the Book of Mormon by putting the plates in a hat and looking in the hat and letting nobody else see the plates except himself. And when he took his head out of the hat, the plates disappeared. That's pretty convenient, don't you think? All right. So uh, Joseph Smith falsely predicted, among other things, the coming of Christ in 1891. Sorry, Joe. Stick to polygamy because you are wrong about prophesying, okay? And then we couldn't get away without mentioning one of the most famous false prophets of all time. I'm definitely going to get maybe killed for this. Uh, Muhammad, right? He's considered a prophet, right? Peace be upon him, people say when they say his name. Uh, I don't know if peace be upon him because he's in hell, but um, Muhammad, uh, he predicted that the Antichrist and the end of the world would come after the Muslim conquest of Constantinople in, drumroll please, 1453 A.D. Sorry, Muhammad, missed it by almost 600 years. So better luck next time, son. You are a false prophet, all right? So, I mean, I don't mean to be sarcastic, but I have to be because Elijah was sarcastic with the prophets of Baal. They missed it. They busted it. They're false prophets. That's not hate speech. That's truth. They missed God's measure of profit. God says, don't worry about them. They're all fake. So God gives us the measure. 100% accuracy. I could see my house getting burned down right now. All right. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 19. You know, people can't take truth anymore. If somebody said that's a false prophecy, I'd be like, oh, okay. I should get out of it. But you know what people do now because of pride? They want to throw a rock at you, or they want to take your channel down, or they want to call you all these kinds of names and get you canceled. Why can't you just take the truth? I want to be like, you can't handle the truth, but that's somebody else. I'll get a plagiarism thing for that too. How about Deuteronomy chapter 19? All right. Deuteronomy chapter 19 talks about our cities of refuge. There's so much beautiful picture, so many beautiful pictures in the cities of refuge. But let's look at Deuteronomy uh, 19 verse 4. All right. Now, cities of refuge were for manslayers. So let's say like you were chopping down some trees with an axe, like my good buddy Jason, and the axe head flies off the axe and it kills somebody. You know, Jason is in a lot of trouble now. Jason is like, oh man, I killed this guy. I didn't mean to kill this guy. 
where does he go? Obviously, the family of the people that he killed want to kill him and get retribution. So God set up these cities of refuge where the slayer could flee to and find escape from the vengeance of these people. And in Deuteronomy 19.4, the Bible says, And this is the case of the slayer which shall flee thither that he may live. Whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly whom he hated not in time past. So it's kind of like what we call today manslaughter. You didn't mean to kill the person, but it was an accident, all right? Murder is something different. Murder is premeditated. God talks about murder being a premeditated act because there's hatred in your heart. But this is an accident. You say, well, what is this a picture of? Well, it's a picture of Israel in the Great Tribulation. Because you know what? The nation of Israel is under the judgment of God because that nation did what? Crucified the Messiah, right? Committed deicide, crucified the Messiah. But the Israelites that are going to be walking around now, that are still going to be in the Great Tribulation, they did it ignorantly. They didn't lay hands on the Messiah. They didn't cry for his blood. But as a nation, they're still under that condemnation. They slew him ignorantly without their knowledge in time past. So you know what God says? In the tribulation, those people can flee to Sela Petra. They can flee to that rock city and find refuge and escape from the Antichrist. And that's what God has set up for them. That's what the cities of refuge point to. In fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, he speaks about the woman, Israel, fleeing into the wilderness and finding refuge for three and a half years, which is the timing of the Great Tribulation. Oh, that Bible. That Bible's got a lot of pictures in it. All right, let's keep going. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Moving right along now. Deuteronomy chapter 20 contains rules for war. How is an Israelite supposed to go to war? And what I want to point out, there's a lot of things in there. I want to point out four things that God said was supposed to keep a Jew from going to war. Very instructive, very practical. You want to see them? All right. Let's look at Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house, and hath not dedicated? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. Reason number one why you couldn't go to war, if you were a Jew in the Old Testament, was if you had a new house. Now that's not like being tax abated or anything like that, okay? That is a picture of being newly saved. Because when you get saved, the Bible says you got this new house from heaven that God's building for you. And God says, if you got a new house, if you're newly saved, guess what? You don't go off to war yet. Right? You need to grow a little bit, son. You need to get some sea legs a little bit. Then he goes on to say in verse number six, And what man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not yet eaten of it, let him also go and return into his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. The second thing is, if you got a new vineyard, and you have no fruit yet, no growth yet, you know what this pictures? This pictures having no real ministry yet, no real growth yet, no real fruit yet. God says, you don't go off to war yet. 
right? We're not sending somebody that's saved for a year and just started teaching Sunday school to the mission field, right? We're not doing that. That would not be wise. God says, if you just planted a vineyard and you just started cultivating something and you haven't seen any fruit and hasn't yielded any crop, don't send that person out to war. They haven't shown any maturity yet. Nothing's grown yet. You haven't seen any fruit yet that could testify to their gifts and their ability to go to war. So God says, just let them grow a little bit, right? Let's keep going. Let's look at verse number seven, all right? And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return into his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. The next thing is, well... If you're engaged, right, you've betrothed the wife and you haven't yet taken her, right? This is, there's no real relationship yet, right? There's no relationship yet. God says, I want you to build a relationship with me and then I'll send you out to war. Eli and I know a great guy named Joe. Some of you know him also. Many, many years ago in Staten Island. He was only saved a very short time, and he had a lot of zeal, and Eli and I were trying to take him under our wing. We took him on the ferry. We took him preaching. We took him witnessing. But there was this other knucklehead that wanted this kid to go climb mountains for God when he didn't even know how to walk, and he had him standing in front of, like, Catholic churches and preaching at people coming out of the masses. It was all this stuff that I wouldn't even do being saved 25 years. Those are just silly things. Yeah, you feel bold. You feel like, you're wow, look at me. That's all flesh. Can I tell you that? That's all flesh. That's all will worship and eye service, and I'm going to out, out-bold you. All that stuff, I don't want any part of that stuff. I, we need humility. We need grace. We need charity. The righteous are bold as a lion, but the righteous are not stupid as an idiot, okay? So we're not doing anything like that. But he put this kid out there, and he kept pushing him. He kept riding him. You know what? It's like, and I've used this analogy before, it's like that Charlie Brown Christmas tree, right? They tried to put too much on those little branches, and that thing went, and just bent over and just broke. And this kid, Joe, I don't know where he is. He's out of the race. He repudiated God. He got so bitter towards everything. He just walked away from it all. And it broke my heart. It really haunted me for years. I don't want to do that to anybody, right? People got to grow in God's timing and God's way. And they got to develop a relationship first before we start piling all this ministry on top of them. That's, that's a good truth there. And the last one is, look at verse 8. So you get that new believer... Yeah, they're engaged to Christ, so to speak, right? They haven't been joined to Him yet, right? But they don't have a a real relationship yet. Let them, you know, if you're newly saved, you know what you got to do? If you're under saved under five years, you know what you got to do? You got to just get to know Jesus Christ and fall in love with Him and His Word and let the Lord take care of the rest. I'm not saying, well, you got to be here, you got to be there. All that stuff is flesh, man. That's corporate Christianity. That's like us bringing in like the corporate model. Like you should be here. You need to advance. God says, have a relationship with me and then start growing and I'll put you where I want you to be, right? So don't get ahead of God. It's, it's easy to get ahead of God. It's hard to be behind him, all right? Now, Deuteronomy 20, verse 8 is the last reason not to go to war. 28, and the officers shall speak further unto the people and they shall say, what man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart so he says, if you've got a new house, don't go. If you've got a new vineyard, don't go. If you're newly engaged, don't go. And number four, if you've got no courage, don't go. Because fear 
is contagious. Fear will go through a church like the plague, like COVID on its worst day, right? Like the bubonic plague. You're worried about the bubonic plague? Fear is a plague. It's contagious. God says it right there. If they see you afraid, it's going to make them afraid. If they see you draw back, they're going to draw back, and then nobody's doing anything for God. So we're not going to send somebody whose knees are still knocking out on the mission field or out on the street corner until they're ready and they've been with somebody and they feel comfortable to do that. Amen? Right? There's a difference between pushing them out of the nest and dropping somebody off a cliff. I'm all for taking leaps of faith, but we got to recognize where people are at. You notice all of these things here are attributes of somebody newly saved. Right? Newly saved, not a lot of growth, not a lot of relationship, still kind of nervous and scared with lacking courage and things. You know what the principle is that Pastor Mel used to teach us for years? God never sends green troops into battle. He makes the man before he makes the ministry. Okay? Everywhere in the Bible, ever. I know they're dying and going to hell. God has got his own timetable. God is going to make you the minister, before he puts you into the ministry. He doesn't throw somebody unprepared into a ministry because then you make a bigger mess than you had before. God says, you need to get some growth and then I'll put you where you need to be when it's the proper time. Amen? God never sends green troops into battle no matter what, you know, no matter what the need is. God says, you need to grow first before you get out there. Amen? So, uh, let's go to Deuteronomy 21. 21. That's a good principle to read, very practical to remember. Because everybody's in a hurry to save the world. And everybody's in a hurry to like, you know, do this. And I know, I know the numbers, they haunt me. I know 150-something thousand people die every day. I know every two seconds somebody dies. I know we should be bold, we should be witnessing, we should be giving out tracts. But you know what? That doesn't mean you send green troops out there just because there's a war. They're going to get mowed over. God says you got to... Make sure they've been established and grown a little bit, got some sea legs. And then, how come Paul and Barnabas were the ones they sent out of Antioch? Some of the two most seasoned guys. Why? Because God says they need to grow a little bit, and then we could send them out. Why? So they could be fruitful and multiply and replenish. Amen? Let's go to chapter 21. All right? 21 is about the ashes of a red heifer. The ashes of a red heifer. This is a beautiful picture. The ashes of a red heifer are about how Israel cleanses its guilt in the tribulation. You say, that's in Deuteronomy? That's in Deuteronomy. Over chapters that you probably never read faster than two seconds. Now, if you read Numbers 19, there's a lot of stuff in there about this red heifer. And... uh, Sure, Eli, and if you know anything about the Jewish religion now, the guys that are really zealous, they're looking for that red heifer. They're trying to breed that red heifer. They're trying to breed this spotless red heifer that has no blemishes on it, that's never been yoked before, because they got to get this red heifer because they're going to sacrifice this red heifer in the tribulation to prepare for their Messiah. Now, they don't know that that Messiah yet is Jesus Christ, but I'm going to show you how this red heifer plays into Israel cleansing itself of the guilt of slaying Jesus Christ. Watch it now. Ready? Verse 1. If one be found slain in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. I can't go past that verse and I see a picture already. 
because one was found slain in the land. His name is Jesus Christ. He was slain in Jerusalem, or just outside Jerusalem, and he was slain in the land. And if you look at the rest of the verse, it says, lying in the field, and it not be not known who had slain him. Can I tell you, nobody's ever been brought to justice for slaying an innocent man, Jesus Christ. Some people blame the Romans, and they had a part in it. Some people blame the Sanhedrin, they had a part in it. We know Israel was really the orchestrators of it, but none of them have been brought to justice. It's just like, who did this to Jesus Christ? The world sometimes wonders. Well, look what happens in verse 4. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. So the elders, because remember, it was the elders that rejected Jesus Christ. The common people heard him gladly, amen, but God wanted the elders to turn to him, and the elders rejected him. So the elders are going to take this red heifer down into the valley. It's probably the valley of Gehenna. Takes them down into this valley, and watch what happens. Ready? Uh, It's a rough valley because that points to the tribulation. Verse number six. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For them the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. Who's got to sacrifice the red heifer? The priests. The sons of Levi. Now, we don't know who those are right now. But you know they're trying to find that out, right? The Jews are trying to trace their heritage and figure out who the Levites are. And I bet by the time we get to the tribulation, they're going to know who the sons of Levi are. And they're going to know who those priests are in the tribulation. And look what happens. Those Levites, the priests, sacrifice the red heifer. And verse 6, watch it. And all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. You see the elders, what they're doing? They're washing their hands like Pilate tried to wash his hands of the guilt of Jesus Christ. They're saying, Our hands are free of this innocent blood. We didn't kill him. We didn't kill him. We want to be free of this guilt. And look at verses 8 and 9. They're a beautiful picture of a tribulation prayer that that nation is going to pray in the the future. See it? Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood. Remember, Jesus Christ was innocent blood. Didn't, Didn't Judas say that? And lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. That is how Israel is cleansed of her guilt in the great tribulation for shedding the innocent blood of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. They're going to get their red heifer. They're going to slay it in that rough valley. They're going to wash their hands. And they're going to ask God for forgiveness. And Jesus Christ is going to get ready to show up because they're turning towards him. It's all pictured in the Old Testament. It's all pictured thousands of years before he comes. Now let's go to chapter 24. Let's go to the D chapter. I'm not looking at every chapter. I, I admit that. Chapter 24. Chapter 24 has the D word in it. Divorce. You think that's next to being the Antichrist if you talk to some people. Right? Divorce. 
It's about putting away your wife in chapter 24. Let's look at it. Verse 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she has departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. So this passage right here is the passage that the Pharisees are confronting Jesus Christ about in Matthew chapter 19. Can I just say this to everybody in the room and everybody watching at home? That everything in Deuteronomy 24 and everything in Matthew 19 is all Old Testament. It is all Old Testament. I know your Bible says New Testament when you flip to Matthew, but Matthew is Old Testament. So the Bible says the New Testament is not in effect until the death of the testator. When Jesus Christ died, that's when the New Testament came into effect. So if I'm a Christian living after the cross and I'm trying to find what God thinks about divorce, I'm not going to Deuteronomy and I'm not even going to Matthew. I'm going to the writings of Paul. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. He gives you the conditions for marriage, divorce, and dare I say remarriage. It's right there in Paul's writings. So all this stuff is is taking the Bible and, and man... If there was ever a doctrine that Christians mess up today, it is divorce. Some people are flipping about it, like just like a pair of shoes you don't like. I'll just get rid of this one and try another one. That's one ungodly extreme. And then you got the ultra-separated, hyper-super-spiritual brethren that divorce is like it's tantamount to being the Antichrist. That if you do that, your life is over and God can never use you again for anything. That's another extreme. God's right in the middle. There are conditions for divorce. Now, when you read Genesis chapter 2, there are no conditions given for divorce. Do you know why? There was no sin. (laughs) So, of course, when God is talking to Adam and Eve, he's like, you're going to cleave to your wife. And he doesn't say anything about being separated. But God's talking here about there are some reasons. And in a short, in a nutshell, it's death, desertion, and and, uh, infidelity. Those are the three reasons why the Bible clearly talks about divorce. Divorce is a separation. He says it right there. When the woman is put out of the house, she's no longer your wife. She marries somebody else. That's a study for another day, all right? Your marriage certificate, though necessary, though you should do it, the marriage certificate in God's eyes, that's not what makes you married. Married. It's when the two of you join together. That's when you become married in God's eyes. Now, do we get the marriage certificate? Yes. <laughs> Why? Because the Bible says, provide things honest in the sight of men, right? We're not supposed to be just shacking up and having common law wives. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying, when you are separated like that through death, that's a separation. Through infidelity, that's a, that's a separation. And through desertion, 1 Corinthians 7, that's a separation. God says, you're divorced. You're no longer married. Now, I don't want to go into a study on divorce. I'm saying more than I wanted to say. But please notice why I wanted to point out that this is about Old Testament. Now, Mike, do, I, do we like divorce? No. God says, for the hardness of your heart, he gave you this precept. It's there as a condition, but of course, God's plan A is that 
you get together and you know you work it out and you should try to do everything you can to keep your marriage together but let's be honest in this sinful flesh sometimes you just can't and that's why God put that there for there's going to be times when the damage is so severe that there needs to be that separation and God says your life isn't over when that happens, all right? No matter what the ultra-separated, super-spiritual brethren want to tell you as they rest the Scriptures to your own destruction, just follow what the Bible says. God's got it covered. God's got you. But why, is I, why am I pointing out the Old Testament? Look at verse 1. Why am I saying Deuteronomy 24 is so much about the Old Testament? Because Old Testament divorce is a picture of what God the Father did to the nation of Israel. He put her away for her uncleanness. See that? Right? When a man had taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, God puts Israel away because she was unfaithful to him. Want to see it? Go to Isaiah chapter 50. This is Old Testament pictures here, what divorce is all about. Isaiah 50, look at verse 1. Isaiah 50, look at verse 1. I'm not making anybody uncomfortable, am I? Help me out. You all right? You're just hot? Okay. Isaiah 50, verse 1. Isaiah 50, verse 1. Isaiah 50, verse 1. Sometimes I, I know what I do. When it's like an uncomfortable subject or something we shouldn't be uncomfortable about, I'm purposely going to like step all over it and push the fence over so you realize, hey, we could talk about it. The Bible says this about it, and we shouldn't be afraid of it, right? All these things about false prophets, what the Bible says about divorce, it doesn't have to be like all hush, hush, oh no, he's talking about that. No, the Bible says, he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. There's nothing we should be afraid of holding the scriptures up to. And if we're wrong, we'll change our ideas. But if the Bible says something, we want to change according to the Bible, not traditions or man's opinions or what so-and-so said or what people say. No, what saith the Scripture? Amen? And in Isaiah 50, verse 1, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother is put away. God is saying, I divorced you, Israel, because you were too wicked to live with anymore. And I put you away for your adulterous heart. She was committing spiritual fornication and joining herself to all these other gods and all these other things around her. And God says, I'm going to divorce you. God is divorced. So the next time they want to slap a scarlet D on your chest, God is divorced. And God gets remarried in the millennium. Amen? So if God will never hold you to a lower or higher standard than he holds himself, and if God is divorced, that means life can go on if you just follow the scriptures. All right, let's keep going. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, he says it again to him, Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 3, verse 8. And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. So there it is again, God divorcing Israel for her uncleanness. That's what it's pictured 
in the Old Testament there. So let's keep going. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. We're going to jump to chapters 27 to 29. Chapters 27 to 29 are about curses and blessings. Curses for disobedience, blessings for obedience. Want to see something in Deuteronomy 27? Look at verse number 26. Go to the end of Deuteronomy 27. The book of Deuteronomy is just so plain, it's almost annoying. Because God just makes it clear. You want to be blessed? Listen to me. You want to be cursed? Keep being an idiot. Oh, but you don't know, Pat. Nope. You want to be blessed? Do what God said. You want to be judged? Keep following what's going on between your ears. It's that plain. It's that direct. It's that straight. Because we want to dance, right? Oh, but you don't know. How about this? How about that? You don't know. God says, you want to be blessed? <laughs> Listen to me. You want me to curse your life and judge you? Keep on being an idiot, right? I don't know how to say it any nicer. I got to get some really fancy words. I need a stool. I got a buttoned up. I got a shirt buttoned off the top button. I need a stool. There's a stool over there. I should just sit and share and lean over and try to make this relative, you know, really try to make this appeal to you and really relate to you and share some God moments that I had this week, right? No. You want to be blessed? Listen to God. You want to be cursed? Close the Bible and keep doing what you're doing. It's that direct. The truth is that plain. And at the end of 27, 26, one day I'm going to get refined like the rest of you and I'll be able to use those smooth, polishy words I'm working on. I got a book by that guy in Texas. Uh, 27, 26. Cursed be he that continue, confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Right? So God finished all the curses in 27. And now in 28, He's going to give you all the blessings. And watch what's right in the middle. Right in the middle. 28.1. And that shall come to pass if, if, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if, if, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. 27 is curses. 28.3 starts the blessings. What hangs in the middle? It hangs on your if. It hangs on the power of your if. If you want to be cursed, he says continue to disobey God and disobey His law like the first generation who missed it. And if you want to be blessed, respond to God and obey His law like the second generation has the opportunity to do. It's that simple. If might be one of the most powerful words in the Bible. The shortest and maybe the most powerful. He says, if you listen to me, you're blessed. If you ignore me, you're cursed. Is that hard to understand? That's simple. God puts that right there for everybody to get. If, 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 if. And anybody that tells you that you have no will and God is sovereign, all these words that people make up and these things that people make up, you, you know what? I love you. If you're watching at home, I'm going to say something you're not going to like. If you think God is sovereign and you have no free will, 
I say this as nicely as I can. You don't know the Bible. And you don't know it as much as you purport to know it to the rest of us. You claim we don't understand the doctrines of grace and we have the wrong view of God. How could you read the Bible and not get from cover to cover the power of if? From the cherubim down to little old you, everything God made has had a choice to choose God's ways or to not choose God's ways. That choice is manifested in all different ways, the cross, the law, following him when you see him like Lucifer did, but it's always a choice. It always hangs on if. And look at chapter 29. I got on a thing. 29. Look at the last verse of 29. I'm almost there. Just a few chapters left, and they're fast. 29, 29. The Bible says, this is a great verse, right? The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Can I tell you? There are some things the Lord has not revealed to you. He may never. You know what? You're not responsible for those things. You're not accountable for the things you don't understand and the things you don't know. But he goes on to say in verse 29, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do, do, do all the words of this law. God's saying, don't worry about the stuff you don't understand, but the things that God has revealed to you are for you and for your children to do. Right? Do you, do you know anything about God? Has God shown you anything about Himself? That's what you've got to be faithful with. Right? You say, well, when I grow up, I'll understand God a little more. No. What do you know about God right now? He's holy. He's loved. He's righteous. Wants me to do this. Wants me to do that. If you're not faithful in the little things He's revealed to you, He's not giving you any more light. But if you're faithful in these little things, God will show you other things. Right? That's why the Lord held Moses so accountable for smiting the rock. That seems very harsh to us, but Moses had communed with God and Moses knew better than to break God's types. And God held Moses to a higher standard than maybe just the average Joe walking around the camp. So Moses smacks that rock the second time and deliberately disobeys God and shatters his type. He says, I'm sorry, you're not going in. Because God was holding Moses to a higher standard because he knew better, Right? And the more God has revealed to you, the more accountable you are. You know what this Bible does? It ruins you. Because now you know too much. And if you want to close it and walk on down the road, it's going to haunt you. It's going to prick you. It's going to stick you. Amen? What does the Bible say? For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. Right, That has to do with service. So if God gives you something a lot, He reveals a lot to you, then you're, you, you have to be accountable to a lot more. I'm scared of the judgment seat of Christ because there's a lot of things I know about that Bible that my kids don't know, and I want to get like behind them or something like that online at the judgment seat of Christ because I know way too much. We know way too much, especially those of us that have been studying this Bible for a little while. We know way too much. We should be doing a lot more and be a lot different, more different. All right, let's go to chapter 32. All right, let me hurry along here. 32 is the Song of Moses. Song of Moses. <clears throat> Ready? Let's go. Now, the Song of Moses, I don't know how it goes, 
I'm not going to make a TikTok, all right? You guys make such, not you, but some people make, I could tell who I offend when I make fun of TikTok because your faces are just like, you know, I got it. All right, but uh, 32, the song of Moses is a song of reproof. It is not something you wanted to sing at Christmas time, all right? It was a song of reproof. It was a song of, uh, not rebuke, but reproof, just charging them to follow God. And in verse number four, he says, he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth. Can I get an amen there? And without iniquity, just and right is he. You know how God starts? God starts this whole song of reproof by telling them that God is their foundation. God is their rock. God is the one that built this nation and God is the one whose work is perfect and God is so great that you should build everything on him. That's where he starts this song of reproof, telling them that God is their rock, Israel. And then he jumps to verse eight. Let's jump to verse eight, seven and eight. Remember the days of old? Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee, thy elders and they will tell thee, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. There's a lot in that verse, but here's what I want you to take away from verse number 8. That God, Moses tells Israel, that God made Israel the foundation of everything in the world. Right? See what He says? He separated the sons of Adam. He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Man, when you get out in the millennium, there's a 12-month system out there. That's according to the tribes of Israel. God set, I mean, that's just one example, but God set up civil rights, religious rights, all these things that we know in the world today, they were founded on what he was doing with Israel. His kingdom has a capital at Jerusalem, right? And God's saying, not only am I your foundation, I made you guys the foundation of the whole world. One day they're going to be the head and all the Gentile nations are going to be the tail. They're all going to flow onto Israel. So he starts this song of reproof by saying, I'm your foundation and you guys are like the bedrock of this thing called the world. You're going to be the, the head of the world. And watch, why does he start that way? Because now he says, now you guys got a choice. Ah, there it is again. A stinking choice. You got a choice, second generation. Your father's messed up, but you could choose God's ways or you could choose the devil's ways. And as you go through Deuteronomy 32, he keeps pointing out two different things. One's from God, one's from the devil. You ready? Let's jump to verse 31. First thing he talks about, two rocks. Which one are you building on? See that? Deuteronomy 32, 31. For their rock, that's the world, is not as our rock, capital R, even our enemies, even our enemies themselves being judges. You know, lost people know what a Christian is supposed to be like. Lost people know how we're supposed to act. And some Christians want to pretend like they don't know. God says, hey, there's two rocks. Which one are you building on? Those two rocks are a picture of salvation. 
You better get on the rock, Jesus Christ, because any other rock is sinking sand. Then he goes to the next verse. Want to see the next verse? Oh, it's, it just follows a beautiful progression. He says in the next verse, there's two vines. See that? Let's look at 32, 32. Um, For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Two vines. Which fruit are you growing? You growing fruit on God's vine? You growing fruit on the devil's vine? You know what this has to do with? This has to do with your walk. See, first one's the rock. That's salvation. Second one's the walk. Which vine are you plugged into? God's vine? Growing some good fruit? Or the devil's vine? Growing sideways. Growing like a mutant. Growing some wild grapes. Don't try to read my handwriting. It's really bad. Right? Next one. Verse 33. Oh, now we're going to get in trouble. Now I'm going to get the strikes. Now I'm going to get some of you turned off. Some of you are going to get upset. There's two wines. See? Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. He says, hey, there's two wines. Which wine are you full of? That's about your spirit. Which wine are you full of? Right? You know there's two kinds of wine in the Bible. We know that, right? There's old wine which is fermented alcohol, otherwise known as hooch. And that says right there in 33 that that wine, I I didn't write this verse, so you you want to get upset. Uh, It's the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Dragons and asps, those are things connected to the devil, right? He's a dragon, he's a serpent, right? So he says that wine, that spirit is from the devil. That's old wine. New wine in the Bible is the wine that God gives. It's unfermented grape juice. Let's look at that in Matthew 26. Let's go to Matthew 26. Let's hold it over there. Hold your place in Deuteronomy. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Look at verse number 27. People say, well, didn't Jesus drink wine? Of course. Didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Absolutely. Which wine? Of course people drank wine in the Bible. Which wine? Right? Which wine did Jesus make the water into wine into? Which wine did he drink at the Last Supper? The old wine or the new wine? The fermented alcohol with the leaven in it that God said stay away from? Or the new wine that was the fruit, the the, the juice of of a grape? Look at 26, verse 27. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them and saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. That word this means the grape was right there. He took the grapes and he squeezed the juice right into the cup and he drank it. He didn't say the fruit of the vine. He said this fruit of the vine. So the grapes was on the table. And Jesus squeezed the grapes into the cup and drank the wine. He says, I will drink it, what? New, new wine with you in my Father's kingdom. So I got to challenge you. One wine comes from the devil. One wine comes from God. Which spirit are ye of? 
Bible says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. <laughs> don't you go to the, don't you see the liquor store and you see wine and spirits, right? Written overhead, right? Because that's a very different spirit in that stuff compared to the Holy Spirit. So you pick your poison, all right? Go back to Deuteronomy 32. Doth this offend you? Deuteronomy 32, 36. That's the last thing in this, different, in, this, in this chapter. Two rocks, salvation. Two vines, your walk. Two wines, your spirit. And the last one is, there's two cups. That has to do not with your spirit, not with your walk, but with your inheritance. See this? Let me show you. Deuteronomy 32, verse number 36. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. 37. And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. God says there's two cups. Which one are you drinking from? Their cup or God's cup? Jump to the book of Psalms. Let me show you the two cups. Ready? You tell me which one you're drinking from. Which one are you laying up in store? Which one is your... Psalm 11. Sorry. Psalm 11. Psalm 11. Almost there. Psalm 11, verse number 5. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. 6, 11, 6. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in horrible tempest, this shall be the portion of their cup. See, the world's cup tastes good in the beginning. And then it gets bad and bitter at the end. Isn't that the truth? There's pleasure in sin for a season, just once you get a little taste. Right? I'm not even being practical. Practically, that's what they do, right? You want to get a little taste, take a hit, you know, take a bottle, have your first one, just have one, everybody's having one. But that's how the world is, right? Just try this, just do that, you get a little taste. It's good in the beginning, but at the end, it ruins you. That's the portion of their cup. But if you go to chapter 16... Look at verse number four. Let's see the Lord's cup. There's verse four, 16, four. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood. Watch out anybody that has a drink offering of blood, by the way. Any supposed church that claims you have to drink blood as an offering, that is not God's church. That's another cup. That's a cup of devils, the Bible says. Right? Another God, their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. Watch out for other churches that have all types of names. Saint this one, saint that one, right? There's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Verse number five. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. Now the Lord's cup, it may, it may be tough in the beginning. Self-denial, right? Accepting the fact that you're a sinner, knowing you need God's grace. Those are some bitter pills to swallow. But you know what? Once you take that cup of salvation and you taste and see that the Lord is good, you know what happens? It gets good and sweet in the end. The world's cup is, is alluring in the beginning, but destructive at the end. 
God's cup may be tough in the beginning for you to swallow it, but in the end, it's always good for you. Always good for you. Chapter 33 and then 34 and then we're done. All right? 34 is short and 33 is shorter than this. Let's go to 33 of Deuteronomy again. I'm going to erase this. All right. So Moses does 32 is the song of Moses, it's reproof. And 33 is the blessing of Moses. And the blessing of Moses is not a reproof. It's just a reminder. And as Moses is getting ready to check out and head up to that mount, you know, where he's going to die, before he does that, God wants to not reprove the nation. He wants to remind the nation about how faithful and how good God is. That's a good reminder for all of us. Look at 33. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 33. Look at verse 1. We're not going to move out of Deuteronomy again, so don't worry. 33.1. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. After the reproof is this great reminder about how faithful God is. Can you look at 32.52? You know what God has just told Moses? You know what he's just reminded him? You're not going in. You know, Moses didn't get mad at God. Isn't that amazing? Moses just busted his you-know-what for the last, what, almost 120 years old he is, right? And he's been like almost 80 years, right, since he ran out of there and tried to kill that guy in Egypt. And he's done all this stuff. He smites the rock twice. God kicks him out. He's actually getting close to to the promised land. God says, just remember, you're not going in. And Moses is man enough and has enough character to not accuse God. He spends the next chapter blessing God for his faithfulness and reminding the nation how great he is. Just because you failed and screwed up doesn't mean there's anything wrong with God. Just because I mess up, there's nothing wrong with him. Even David said that thou mightest be justified and clear when thou judgest God. David wanted everybody to know when David messed up with Bathsheba, he said, hey, I'm going to put my shame in the book of Psalms so everybody knows, hey, God, there's nothing wrong with you. It was me. It was me. And Moses right here, he goes on and blesses the Lord and reminds everybody how faithful God is. He's not going in. You think people were wondering about whether God was faithful or not? God couldn't get you in, Moses. Moses says, let me remind you how faithful God is. My mistakes are my own mistakes to count. And you know what he points to as the greatest blessing of God's faithfulness? In verse 2, it's a promise of his future coming. See verse 2? And he said, the Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand, went to fiery law for them. That's not talking about what happened in Exodus. That's talking about what happens in the tribulation. He writes about it in the past tense because it's already done in God's mind. But he didn't come up with ten thousands of his saints yet. He didn't shine forth yet. He didn't come from Mount Paran like that yet. But he will. And in talking about the great blessing and faithfulness of God, he says, let me just tell you, out there in the future, God's going to come and establish this nation as the head of the world with Jesus Christ as king. Look at verse 3 and 4. Yea, he loved the people, all his saints are in thy hand, and they sat down at thy feet, every one shall receive of thy words. Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. He has a reminder there that God is faithful to give his people his words. Drawing a parallel between what Moses did and what the Messiah is going to do. Because at the first coming at Sinai, 
Moses instituted the Old Covenant, right? He gave them the law. They became a nation. Well, the second coming at Mount Sinai, the prophet like unto Moses institutes the New Covenant, and Israel becomes a great nation again. You see, I know he comes down at the Mount of Olives, but he's coming down at Sinai first, folks. That's where he's going to come down at Sinai, and he's going to shoot across over there, and the whole path of the second advent is in your Old Testament. I know he puts his feet down at the Mount of Olives, but he comes down at Sinai, like he did in Exodus 19. He's going to do it again in the future. He doesn't put his feet down there, like he didn't put his feet down there in Exodus 19, but he's coming down at Sinai again. You believe it. It's coming true. Verse 5. And he was king in Jeshurun, meaning Moses, when the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. There's another reminder that God is faithful to give his people his king. Here's the parallel. The first coming at Sinai, Moses was king in Jeshurun. He was a king over Israel. The second coming at Sinai, Jesus Christ will be king over the nation. And I'm not going to read all this, but you want to read verses 6 to 25 are all the blessings on all the 12 tribes. He goes in, talks about all the blessings of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he gets to verse 26, and 26, he ends his blessing with Israel's deliverance in the Great Tribulation, which is the greatest thing and the greatest faithfulness that God will have for that little nation that everybody thinks God has forgotten. 26, there is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them! Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heavens shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency. And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. Whew! What a day that will be. They got some of it with Joshua. I know there's a direct application. But man, when Jesus Christ comes, when Joshua, Jesus comes back, you're going to see that stuff really fulfilled forever. And lastly, and very briefly, 34 is the death of Moses. Short chapter, a lot going on in there. Won't go into all of it, but let's look at verse 4. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. Moses saw it, but Moses won't enter the promised land until that prophet is king. He'll get in there. He'll be there in the millennium, don't worry, when that prophet is king. Verse number 6. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. Moses is resurrected before Calvary. How do you know that? He shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, this was a controversial thing. Because in the book of Jude, verse 9, the Bible says that the devil was contending. What does it say in Jude 9? What is the word he uses? I want to just see it. Jude 9. It says, um, 
Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation. You see, the devil said, whoa, 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 whoa. How can you resurrect Moses? The, you know, you can't do that. But God resurrected Moses on credit. <laughs> he knew Jesus Christ was going to die, shed the blood, and rise again from the dead. And on the faith of knowing his son would rise again from the dead and open up those doors, he resurrected Moses, I guess, prematurely as far as the devil was concerned. The devil had a problem with it. but he Because the devil had the keys of death and hell. He was the one. He was the one that kept people under that bondage. And so he's like, how can you do this? I got the keys of death and hell. God said, don't worry about it. I got a plan. You don't know. I'm not going to tell you because you'll mess it up, but I got a plan. And he resurrects Moses on credit, on the credit and the future resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the devil's like, huh? But he does it anyway. And that's why you see Moses show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. How'd he get there? Because God raised him from the dead. Sometime after this scene, God raised and resurrected Moses by his power. All right? And then verse number seven. And Moses was 120 years old when he, was di- when he died. Watch this. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. You know who Moses represents? The law. You know the law doesn't lose its strength until you're saved? Moses died just as strong as he was, just as, you know, his eyesight was fine, his strength was fine, And God, you know, he died. That's a picture of the law still being strong enough to destroy you until you get saved. If you get saved, only when you get saved does that law lose its power over you. Amen, amen. amen. Uh, Let's just go to Deuteronomy 30. Let me leave you two quick thoughts and then we'll pray. These These are quick. Well, it depends on how right you are with God. If you're wrong with God, I might have to preach long. If you're right with God, I could be really fast. So I'm going to assume that you might be right with God. But here's... Two big ideas from the book of Deuteronomy. I find this book very challenging the last couple of days. Number one, first big idea. This is a great one. God is the God of second chances. Amen? Amen. I thought I'd get a better one there, but that's okay. I know it's late. God is the God of second chances. Third chances, fifth chances, but I'm thankful that Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, is a great reminder that God is the God of second chances. The first generation had been prepared and they failed. And God gave the second generation another chance to get all God had for them. What a blessing. Amen? I mean, take about about the human race. The first Adam messed up, condemned us all. The last Adam gives us a chance to be made right with him again. Woo! You may have, and let's take it on a personal level. You may have had a cursed past. Your lost past may have been a disaster. Guess what? God says, if you believe me, you could be blessed. You follow what I'm saying? You could be blessed. All the mistakes of the past, you could just turn the corner and just do what I tell you to do, and you could be blessed because God is the God of second chances. Amen? That's the first big choice. And the second big idea, I should say, is that you have a choice. You don't have to be a victim. Everybody is a victim today. A victim of their past. A victim of bad parents. A victim of circumstances. A victim of this. A victim of that. All these things outside of your control. You think that generation that was about to go into the promised land didn't have something to gripe about? They just wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of what their parents had done. You know what God says? You don't have to be a victim. You don't have to complain. You do what I say. You have a choice. You can get all God has for you. 
and you all have, maybe you all had a bum steer. Maybe you all had a bad hand dealt to you. Guess what? You could sit and just cry in the cesspool of your past, or you could just do what God says to do and watch him do something in your life. You don't have to be a victim, brethren. You don't have to be a victim. The first generation had all they needed to get all God had for them, and they chose to disobey. They wandered for their choices and their foolish rejection of God. So now God is standing at the precipice of all these blessings, like you right here tonight are standing at the precipice of all the victory God could give you, and God has given you everything you need if you're saved. Choose God, and you could be blessed. Forget the excuses. Forget the past. God says, choose. Will you choose? Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. Moses is getting ready to wrap up the book and look at these challenging, challenging words. He says, See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, and his statutes, and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply. And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land where thou goest to possess it, but if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish." And that you shall not prolong your days upon the land, whether thou goest, or whether thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. This is a great verse. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. I know, I'm the same way. Our flesh wants to make excuses. Our flesh wants to pity party. Our flesh wants to be the victim. But if God gives you a chance, you have a choice to make things right. That's what he told the second generation. I'm giving you a chance. That means you have a choice. You don't have to be the victim of bad choices in the past, what somebody else did. You have a choice right here on the precipice, right there on the banks of the River Jordan. They're getting ready to cross over. Joshua's getting ready to take them. He says, listen, you go in there. I'll help fight your battles. I'll establish you a land of corn and wine flowing with milk and honey. It's all yours. It's yours. But if you're going to be a victim and cry in your beer, you might stay on the other side. He's challenging them. What am I saying? You know what's encouraging? I'll finish with this thought, then we'll pray. There's always something you can do with God. As long as you're breathing, and you have the Word of God, there's hope. There's always hope with God. There's always something you can do. As bad as the marriage might be, as bad as the family might be, as bad as the circumstances of your life might be, there's always something God will tell you to do that if you're willing to hearken, He can get you to the other side. So I challenge you all, stop blaming the past and start believing God. Let's see what he could do with us. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you for your very kind attention tonight, folks. Lord.